Well, this morning's sermon, we are actually going to be looking at several different texts of Scripture, so uh, there's no one in particular. If you are interested in flipping around and following, we're going to, the first text we're going to quickly look at is Ezekiel 14.6. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we open your word and we ask you to be merciful to us and to help us in every way. For we know, Father, that unless you give us eyes to see, we can't see. Unless you give us ears to hear, we can't hear. Unless you, by your Spirit, work in us. We're dumb, we're blind, we're deaf. Father, we need you desperately. Help us this morning to understand repentance. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. Do you realize the greatest need we have as a church, and in fact as a nation, is for God to show up in power? Maybe you're saying, oh yeah, that's obvious. But that's what we need. We need that as Redeemer Church. We need that as a nation. We need God to show up on our behalf. We need Him to show up in a big way. We need him to show up in power. We need his presence. But I have another question for you. Do you know what will hinder God's presence and power among us? Do you know what will hinder it from showing up? Often, what do, we, what do we call to do? What do we think we need to do? Often, it's we say, well, we need to pray and we need to seek God. And not that praying and seeking God is bad, but unless we do this first, it's like praying to a tin wall. The words will just bounce back to you. What do we need is we need to deal with the issue of sin. And it isn't necessarily big sin, like those big sins like adultery and murder and issues like that. As we saw last week, They're the little sins, sins like apathy, indifference, pride, lust, envy, fear, etc. These are the sins that Christians learn to live with and then wonder why God seems so distant in their lives. These are the sins we get really comfortable with. These are the sins that cause God to feel like he's so far away. Where are you at, O Lord? Where are you at? Last week, we looked at this very issue, and we came away realizing, hopefully, that sin, if not repented of, has these kinds of ramifications. As we looked at the churches in Revelation, that's exactly what Jesus was saying to them is that you need to deal with these sins. You need to deal with this lukewarmness. You need to deal with the fact that you've lost your first love. You need to deal with the fact that you think you're alive, but in reality you're dead. Because there's, there's discipline coming as a result. And the discipline in some cases is Jesus says, you're in here worshiping me, so-called. I'm out there knocking, saying, hello, hello, anybody home? And at the end of last week's sermon... I said the solution to this is repentance. 
However, I left you hanging a little bit. I just left it out there, stating that so often I think we, we say a word, it becomes the cliche Christian word to say, but we all have kind of formulated different understandings of it and not really sure exactly what it means, especially if we were asked, could you explain that to me? What exactly does that mean look like? Well, so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to walk through what it means to repent. What is repentance? Why is it important to understand And what does biblical repentance look like? Because repentance needs to be understood. When so many people, if you hear that word repent, so many people think things like it means changing your behavior. Or it means feeling remorse for sin. Or it means confessing your sin. And maybe there's others. But typically we have different understandings of it. So what is it really? Well, let's begin by looking at what the Old and New Testament say about it. And here's something that's very important to start with. In the Greek, we translate the word repent from the Greek word metanoeo, metanoeo. In all the Greek lexicons you look look at, it technically means this. Now listen, this is important. A change of mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that incredibly interesting. Kind of like a, hmm, what? What are you talking about? That struck me as strange. Because I had been taught that repentance is a turning from sinful behavior to righteous behavior. And this argument was built upon the Hebrew word for repent, which is shuv. And shuv means to turn. Now, it's interesting that the Hebrew understanding of repentance This Hebrew word means to turn, and the Greek word is to have a change of mind. And so, on the basis of this Hebrew word, to to turn, some of the respected teachers that I have listened to taught that this means to turn from wrong behavior to right behavior. An example of this would be the passage I told you to turn to, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6, which says, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Here the turning was an actual physical turning away from the idols like Baal and a turning toward Yahweh in total commitment. That's what repentance was there. But notice it's fundamentally, it isn't a call for a change of behavior but a change of God's. And this is significant. Of course, there would would obviously be a change of behavior depending on the God you served. But that behavior is subservient to a change in belief about who is the true God. So when you believe that Yahweh was God and Baal was a false God, you would turn from from Baal to Yahweh. But if you believed that Baal was God and Yahweh was not, what would you do? You would not turn. So fundamental to it, this idea of turning, turning is based on believing. You're not going to turn from Baal to Yahweh unless you believe that Yahweh is the true God. So when Israel believed that Yahweh was the true God and Baal was a false God, what did did she do? She would turn. She would turn back to Yahweh. 
And if she didn't, she would remain and disregard all the prophets and what they were proclaiming. And this is why it connects back to what the Greek is all about, where we're literally called to have a change of mind. Because a change in belief about who is the true God and what it is what it means to have a change of mind. Now, here's the thing. I have to admit, this caught me off guard a little bit and has caused me to stumble over this and to wonder, what exactly is this getting at? I don't really completely understand this. But the more I studied this and the more I put the pieces together, the more it made sense. So let's walk carefully through this for a moment because this, as, we, as we walk through this, you will see why this Greek idea of having a change of mind is so fundamentally important to this idea of repentance. First of all, we need to notice that throughout the New Testament, the call is to repent and believe. Sometimes we're called to repent, sometimes we're called to believe, and sometimes we're called to repent and believe. Let me give you some examples. Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark 1, 15, he says, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then in John three sixteen it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So all that was required there is the believing. So, so you get these three different calls without any kind of contradiction. Repent, repent and believe, believe. So why is that? What's going on? When we go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, which we walked through a couple of weeks ago, we saw the process by which we ended up in death, didn't we? How did we go from life to death? Well, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they're enjoying the blessings of the garden. They're experiencing fullness of life. And then the enemy comes, and he, and he presents a lie to them. And what do they do? They believe the lie. And when they believe the lie, what happened? They acted upon that, and they ate the fruit, and they died. They experienced a a spiritual death that day. This means that Adam and Eve fell into sin because they had a change of mind in regard to what God had said. And that's what it was always really about. Did God really say, as Satan puts it? They believed the lie from the evil one. And when the lie was believed, action took place, and death was the result. So now, if we're going to come out of death to life, what needs to happen? Well, as Jesus would say, repent. Or repent and believe. Or believe. Because once Jesus provided the atonement and the means for reconciliation with God, our repentance is all that is left. Which means... A change of mind in regard to the lie we have been believing. And the truth about Jesus and what he's done. It means a change of mind about what sin is. What judgment is. Who God is. Who Satan is. Who we are. And on and on it goes. This is why the teach, teaching the truth is absolutely essential if one is to repent and believe. It is this repenting and believing that sets us free. As Jesus said in John 8, 
a famous passage quoted in John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and you can finish it. The truth will set you free. And then just a few verses later, Jesus said this about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a father and the father of lies. And we know that lies are what keep people in bondage. So what this means is that without a change of mind in regard to what the, the, the lie, there will be no repentance. Without a change of mind in regard to what is the truth and believing it, there's no repentance. Repentance is a change of mind about that lie and believing the truth. This is also why repentance is simply is not simply confessing your sin. And I'm going to make a distinction here. Many a Christian men have confessed to their buddies that they are addicted to porn. But they have not been able to break free. Do you know why? Because they have not had a change of mind in regard to, the, in regard to porn and the true, what true godly sexuality looks like. They are still convinced of the lie that porn is going to give them joy and fulfillment. The lie that porn is what sex is all about. The lie that it won't have any long-term negative effects on their relationships, their brain, or their health. The lie that many of the people involved aren't from the wicked sex trafficking epidemic. The truth is, joy and fulfillment only come from the fullness of God's spirit. The truth is, porn is a fabricated lie that seeks to create an experience that doesn't exist in the real world. The truth is, porn destroys relationships, expectations, your brain, and your health, which have all been proven. The truth is, porn is what drives the sex trafficking industry. The truth is, the people involved are either being forced, they're being lied to, or they're being filled with incredible pain, guilt, and disgust of themselves. And you realize that the more that we uncover the lies, and the more that we understand the truth, the more that we walk in freedom in relationship to it. But there will be no repentance if all we do is confess our failure to our buddies. Understand that. Confessing your failures to your buddies is not repentance. And this is because why? Repentance is a change of mind in regard to the lie and the truth. And a change of mind is fundamental. Because all sin comes from where? Comes from us believing a lie and then going after it. Just like we saw in the garden. So if you're going to repent, you have to know the truth and believe it. But we also need to understand that repentance is not simply about a change of behavior. And I'm going to illustrate this with another story. This is a story about a woman named Sharon. Sharon grew up in a family well-respected for its great teachers, worship leaders, and community pillars. As a young girl, she sang beautifully and played a number of instruments proficiently. 
Poised, attractive, intelligent, and charming, Sharon had enormous potential and passion. But as she became a young adult, every now and then she would unexpectedly erupt in rage over something insignificant. As Sharon became an adult, she gained responsibilities that matched her growing proficiency. But she didn't smile as much or as easily. She found herself lashing out at her new husband and then feeling terrible. Outsiders saw Sharon as a role model, but to those close to her, she was an enigma. When she entered her 30s, much of Sharon's kindness was replaced with a growing air of superiority. She grew incredibly driven and spent more time alone. What could cause these incredible displays of pain in a seemingly together person? Sharon's own words will explain. I grew up attending church every time the doors were open. And I trusted Jesus as my Savior as a very young girl. But what I heard in church and what I experienced at home were two very different things. My, quote-unquote, Christian parents sinned violently against me. My father and other, many other men used me sexually, and my mother knew of it. Whenever I resisted, my parents would twist Scripture by saying that children are to obey their parents in all things, quote-unquote. My parents did further harm by repeatedly telling me that I was born with the wrong personality and that no man would ever want to marry me because I was too strong. As a child, I wasn't able to bring to God the acts of sin done against me. I couldn't even understand what was happening to me and didn't know what to do with the involuntary responses of hurt and guilt. Because I did not know how to resolve my hurt, a torrent of inevitable effects unleashed in my life. Because I was just a child, I felt I must have done something to deserve the abuse. And this false guilt made me feel shame. I felt that I didn't deserve to be looked upon with anything but contempt. My shame caused me to grow up believing I was unlovable. I was only worthy to be used and hated. I was desperately trying to be the right kind of woman, but I had no idea how to act because I didn't understand who I was. But the deepest wound was my heart's lack of hope that anyone could ever love me. I had no idea what to do with the constant hurt and pain. Of course, I had to hide the truth of my life. Hiding became the goal of my existence. I did everything I could to control my circumstances. I learned to change my behavior to fit the spiritual culture wherever I was. I became very judgmental of others so that I could feel better about myself. If I felt anger... I could always blame someone or something for it. I was very good at blaming. Sharon continued to try and repent by changing her behavior over and over throughout the years. She tried changing her feelings, but never was able to until she came to understand the truth about Jesus and the lies she was believing. Thankfully, this part of Sharon's story ends in the most glorious way. And you know why? Because she was able to repent of the lies and believe the truth. She tried for most of her life to change her behavior. And if she thought that was repentance, then she was without hope, and God seemed even further away. But once she realized the lies she was telling herself and believing... And once she understood the truth of God's redeeming love and believed it, 
she walked away in true freedom and joy. Because the lies were coming from the evil one about all the actions that were done to her. And yet the truth is her value and worth is not measured by what others, di- what others do to her or had done to her, but what Jesus did for her. Sharon repented of the lies and believed the truth about what Christ had done for her. She believed the truth that Jesus came to heal the people just like her, that Jesus binds up the brokenhearted, that Jesus cleanses every evil, that Jesus loved her so much he's willing to suffer and die in a more evil way than she had suffered. Sharon had to work through the truth and come to understand the lies she was believing. But as she did, do you realize what happened? She was set free, and it changed everything. So what the evil one had done to her, God used for good. Sharon experienced love like many of us won't. Sharon experienced grace like many of us won't. Sharon experienced redemption like many of us won't. And why? Because Sharon was deeply hurt, and then Sharon was deeply healed. And now she lives with the love, joy, and peace radiating from her soul because she repented. Because she had a change of mind about the lies she was believing and believed the truth. And because she did that, it changed the way she behaved. It changed the way she acted. So it's very important, it's very important for us to see and understand that repentance isn't that you promise never to do anything different, do that bad thing again. I promise to change my behavior. Nor is it confessing that you've failed. Nor is it feeling remorse for what you have done. Even though you might feel you should and ought to feel remorse for what you've done, that's not the qualifier. Many people feel really bad for what they've done. Really bad. And then they come and they confess how bad they feel for what they've done. And then they promise that they're going to change their behavior and everything's going to be different this time. And it seems, man, that sure seems like repentance. But if fundamentally, if they don't have not repented of the lies that they're believing that caused them to walk in that action and believe the truth, they will not walk in the truth and they will not repent. And the reason this is so important to understand is because without a change of mind, there will never be a change of behavior. Unless there's, and when I say the change of mind, it's a change of belief. And please don't misunderstand me. I am not talking about a simple change of knowledge. I'm talking about a change of belief. And there's a fundamental difference. Because you might know the truth And you might know the lie you are believing, but until you reject the lie and believe the truth, you've not repented. Many Christians are stuck in sin and have an absence of life in their souls. Because even though they feel bad, even though they confess their sin to God and try to change their behavior, they are not repenting of the lies and believing the truth. And now we can see why it's so important to speak the truth in love to one another. Because 
we all need the truth of the gospel to set us free from the foolish lies that we're tempted to believe. Just think what Mike spoke about this morning, addressing the whole issue of where you find your glory and worth from. Do you find it from the praise of men? If you pursue that and go after that and you're tempted by that, which you will be, we all are on many levels, you will find that by believing that lie, you will fall into a bondage and a trap. But when you, you, you realize that's the lie and you turn to the truth, that your, your value, your worth, your glory, all that you're looking for comes from God in Christ Jesus. And as you believe that, you will be set free from that bondage. But as we fall and as we stumble into sin, do you know what happens when we do that? We get cloudy. We get blinded. And there's something that's needed in all of this. It's one another. We need to speak the truth and love to one another. We need to understand that when we're, usually we're stumbling and falling in an area, we're, we're so proud and so desirous to make changes on our own, we don't let anybody else know because we'll, I'll work this out. Well, you can't. God has designed it this way. And this is why it's so, it's so needful for us to connect and clearly understand the connection between repentance and confession. If we confess to others who can speak the truth and love to us and encourage us to repent and believe the truth and reject the lie. This is how God has designed it for us to be ministered to and ministered to others. Understanding clearly, confession is essential to our repentance, but it isn't repentance. It's essential to our repentance, but it isn't repentance. And why is that? Because when we fall into sin, what we need to do is we need to confess that sin to others, and those others help us and walk with us and pray for us so that we would turn from the lie and believe the truth. Uh, God will so often give others to see for you what you can't see. So that you don't end up as these independent creatures who just go on your way, own little way, live your own Christian life, doing your own little thing. And as long as I keep this secret, and I'm going to work this out, man. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to overcome this. I am going to deal with this. And I'm, I'm going to beat it, me and God. Another lie. We're deceived by how it is that we even walk toward repentance. And because this whole issue of confession is such a big deal... And it's something that we need to understand. Next week, I am going to be dealing with confession and how it relates to repentance. Because that is just as big of a deal as it is understanding repentance all by itself. Suffice it to say for now that confession is not repentance. But in true repentance, there needs to be confession. But let's remember, repentance... Properly understood is a change of mind that inevitably leads to a change of behavior. But don't think that it's a change of behavior. Don't think it's just feeling remorse. And don't think it's just purely confessing what you did wrong. 
You will never repent until you reject the lie and believe the truth. Amen. Father, we're thankful and we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you give us such clarity about what you've called us to do. And I ask, Father, that you would help us in every way to repent and turn from the lie and believe the truth. That you, O God, would be merciful and grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would lead us in the way of repentance, that we would seek the truth and understand it, that we would see the lie and turn from it and wholeheartedly cling to and believe the truth. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.